One of the things that concerns us at Stratfor is a doom loop between private sector debt, the banking systems, and sovereign debt, particularly in Europe. And if you have a hiccup in any one of those, there's a possibility that it could eventually set off another European sovereign debt crisis. Welcome to a special edition of Stratfor's Essential Geopolitics podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. There's little doubt that the global coronavirus pandemic has impacted all aspects of life from education, economies, markets, governments, societies, to geopolitics, and of course, health. In this podcast, we'll be talking about the global economic impacts of the coronavirus. As it has spread, the virus has left industries stuttering in its wake, markets fluctuating widely, and as yet, it's unclear when things will recover or how. For guidance, I turn to Michael Monderer, Stratfor's Senior Analyst for Global Economics, and Emily Hawthorne, Stratfor's Middle East and North Africa Analyst. I've asked them to navigate us through some major topics of this global economic impact. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Michael, let's jump right in. It's been widely shared that the economic effects of the coronavirus in the United States has been substantial. But, of course, it's also been politicized. Can you walk us through what you have seen so far regarding the U.S. economy? Certainly, Emily. Uh, Well, Emily, the U.S. is in deep recession. There's no doubt about that by anybody. The uh, GDP in the second quarter was off by... uh, 9.5% from the first quarter. That's an annualized rate of almost 33%. Uh, Since then, we've had consumer confidence um, has gone up a bit, but it's still below its February levels, something like 32% below its February levels. We've had a small recovery in retail sales. We've had industrial production increase, but that is still below 2019 levels. And we have project uh, management indices, um, PMIs, that that are forward-looking, showing that the U.S. economy is perhaps in expansion. On the other hand, there's been long-term structural damage to the U.S. economy. Uh, 50 million-plus people have filed for unemployment claims since the middle of March, and weekly claims are back over 1 million for for every each week. Um, I saw an estimate today by uh, by a large investment bank that perhaps 25% of those that have been laid off or on furloughed will in fact have permanent job losses. And the number of people unemployed for 15 to 26 weeks, which is considered long-term employment, is actually up by almost two times since the level in March. So we're looking at long-term job losses? Yeah. That seems like a, a significant employment situation. Well, it, it is, Emily. And the, um, the thing is, we don't have any real-time indicators of what's going on in the U.S. labor market. Uh, the best we have is data that's a week old that shows initial claims for unemployment. Um, those went back over a million for the week, the most recent week. Uh, it comes out on Thursday every week. We'll have to see what happens this week. But as I said, you've had 50 million people lose their jobs and file for unemployment, for new unemployment, just since the middle of March. Um, so the economy is not really creating jobs. 
it's more or less laid off people going back to work and the official unemployment rate probably lags what is going on in the in the economy as a whole. Um, Michael, can I hop in here and, and in a previous podcast that you and I did, you described yeah. the job losses as as you know to the Great Depression. I mean, are are we still looking at that kind of impact to jobs? Um, I can't really say that. Um, we were saying that the unemployment rate might go to might be in fact twenty five percent. The official unemployment rate is actually only ten point two percent right now, so it's probably the worst outcome since the Great Depression, but. In terms of uh, the percentage of the labor force that's working or not working, it probably at this point it's it's unclear whether it exceeds the Great Depression. And what we do mm-hmm. know is that something like 30 million people still continue to be dependent on government employment uh, benefits. Mm-hmm. So I have noticed in recent reporting that I've been reading that the coronavirus economic impact has affected uh, U.S. and major U.S. businesses, their debt ratings. Yes. Can you explain a little bit about that? Well, sure. First of all, Emily, um, we're, in, we're in for a record number of bankruptcies this year. Um, as of the first half of this year, 3,600 companies were already in Chapter 11. Uh, that's an increase from the same period last year of 26%. And the uh, the number of companies in bankruptcy in June of this year was 43% higher than it was a year ago. Uh, so a lot of companies that have had problems that have had to close probably are not going to be able to reopen. Um, they have been they have been bailed out, so to speak, by the uh, things like the Paycheck Protection Program which have allowed them to keep going and keep paying payrolls. But that expired at the beginning of August, and Congress has not has not expanded it. Um, the president took temporary action when he moved $44 billion from disaster relief funds into a continuation of unemployment benefits or enhanced federal unemployment benefits. But $44 billion is not going to last very long in this environment. Um, and it's only it's basically only a Band-Aid. And even that depends on states stepping up and contributing a large amount of revenue or a large amount of uh, uh, additional funding. And states are not really in a position to do that. Um, almost every state has had a, a shortfall in revenue. And 48 of the 50 states, as well as the District of Columbia, um, have some sort of requirement for balanced budgets. So when revenues fall, they have to automatically cut spending. And states are just as strapped, if not more so, than uh, than anybody else. Um, so can so, that, that, of course, down the line will have an impact on employment even further, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you could at some point, you could have states adding to the unemployment problem if states have to start cutting payrolls in order to, in order to balance their budgets. We've talked about some of the top-line domestic issues for the United States, but uh, one of the major economic issues that I've been reading about has been, and I've certainly experienced, is the impact on global supply chains. Mm-hmm. What's what's specifically going on, and when or if will it ever change? Well, the um, there's been a tendency in recent years to internationalize supply chains, um, this has been what's driven globalization. Of course, 
when we did that and there were lockdowns in various countries, it shut off supply chains. And that resulted in, in, in things being interrupted and in price increases in some cases. And those continue. Um, one of the reasons that food prices are going up, and if you've been to the market lately, you realize that that's happening, is that there have been interruptions in supply. Um, so the world is going to have to come to grips in the next few years with whether or not it wants to have um, continued internationalized supply chains over great distances or whether supply chains are going to be relocated and be more regionalized. Well, I just noticed last week that there was a statistic that said for the first time ever the U.S. debt has surpassed its GDP. Yes. Um, Is that a significant... it is. It's basically at World War II levels, and it's going to continue to be high for quite some time. Um, the 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 only way it's going to come down over time is if the economy grows. And right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. Um, the the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, is projecting something like seventeen percent real growth in this quarter, the third quarter of twenty twenty. But that remember that's from a very low base. That was after we had. Um, an annualized decline in the second quarter of one-third. Right, because 17% seems high, 17%, it seems, but right. what you're saying it does, is... It does, but, but I mean, the numbers that are being thrown around, I mean, just take take any country and follow it, follow the name of the country by had a record quarterly decline in its economy. The only country you really can't say that about is China. One thing that bothers me is that when the second quarter numbers come in, we're going to derive a false sense of security from them. We're going to say we had this 17% increase in the economy. Wow, that's the biggest it's ever been. Uh, we don't need to do anything more. And uh, uh, it will be left at that. We'll celebrate the uh, the big increase, but we won't compare it to the uh, to the decline that happened before. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, there is going to be a lot of what the Fed is calling permanent scarring in the economy. I think we talked about that in our last podcast, where the fact that you have, um, you're going to have not just jobs disappearing, but you have a record number of bankruptcies. Um, a lot of companies that have that have shut down um, are probably never going to reopen. Business investment has been down for five consecutive quarters in the U.S. It's going to continue to decline, and it's just going to take a long time for the U.S. to sort of climb out of this deep hole. If you're looking at this in a chart, when you talk about the 17% increase after mm-hmm. a 33% decrease, you're not even back to zero. No, right? exactly. And it's probably going to take a minimum of two or three years for us to get back to to, the, to just the 2019 level. Let's talk about how some other countries are faring amid the crisis. Um, how will this play into other issues perhaps that Europe is facing? Well, um, Europe is actually doing better than the United States in terms of managing the, the, uh, the pandemic. Um, you seem to have a spectrum between the United States at one end and China at the other. Um, and Europe is somewhere in the middle, although there have been some recent outbreaks, some localized outbreaks, particularly in Spain. And that's going to probably result in, in some localized lockdowns, which will continue to hold the European economy back. Overall, 
for the European Union, there was something like a 15% quarter-on-quarter decline in the second quarter of this year. And they're going to have many of the same issues that we have, plus the fact that they have been doing probably a better job than the U.S. in providing income support. But as businesses begin to close, uh, wage subsidies are going to stop, and you're going to have an increase in unemployment in Europe. So all of the factors that have impacted the U.S. are going to perhaps carry over with a delayed impact into Europe, and you're going to have very significant declines in, in European economies across the board this year. Well, how will this play into the other issues Europe is dealing with, such as Brexit? Yes, um, there is an end-of-year deadline for them to reach an agreement on the U.K.'s future relationship with the EU. Um, our House view is that there will probably be some kind of agreement. It will be limited in scope. It won't cover the full range of relations, and it will probably take years for the UK and the EU to work out its 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 new arrangement. Uh, but in the end, the relationship of the UK to the European Union will probably be somewhat along the lines of what Switzerland has right now, which is a very loose um, uh, configuration that uh, does allow it some trade preferences, um, some open borders, but uh, is, is, is not on, the ter- on par with what a member of the EU would have. Thanks, Michael. We'll be right back. We'll get back to our conversation in just a moment. But I wanted to cut away for a moment to talk with you about Stratfor Worldview, Rain's premier geopolitical publication and a go-to source for diplomats, businesses, professionals, and individuals around the world. Together, Stratfor and Rain help you understand the why behind what's going on now. Because what happens next? Well, that's up to you. If you'd like to learn more, consider a subscription to Stratfor Worldview. Podcast listeners can access a special rate at stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's stratfor.com slash podcast offer. Now, let's get back to our interview. Well, let's talk about borders. Emily, I'd like to turn to you here. Uh, One of the Stratfor analyses that came out this summer look to the effect from the COVID virus into a potential migrant influx. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yes. So the EU every summer, um, because of weather patterns, um, warmer weather, sees uh, an influx of uh, migrants attempting to cross the Mediterranean and apply for asylum in the EU. So this is a seasonal issue that's certainly not new because of COVID-19 economic strain. But you do have to ask, okay, because of the economic contraction felt in Europe, um, just like everywhere else around the world because of COVID-19, is there uh, sort of a greater, stronger push? Are are more people attempting to reach Europe in the hope for a more prosperous economic future? Also, can the EU continue to find the funding that it provides to other governments on the other side of the Mediterranean to try and um, sort of curb the flow of migrants. And, you know, our, our view at Stratfor is the EU is, is going to continue finding and, and doling out money to partners across the Mediterranean countries like Tunisia, for example, they just had uh, Italy and Tunisia just had big discussions on this. Um, and the EU does and EU states continue to give money to other countries across the Mediterranean to try and, 
and curb migration because they view it as a, a, an issue that will become more expensive if more people cross. And so it, it's a very tricky issue and one that comes up every year, but certainly budgets are tighter everywhere and people are suffering around the world. And so there is an extra sort of push factor behind some people trying to make that cross. But, you know, one of Mike and I's colleagues will always say, you know, the EU will always be able to find some sort of, of money somewhere to help patch up some of these issues. And migration across the Mediterranean is one of those issues. It's also an issue, Emily, that's really important when we think about how the EU views issues differently, depending on which countries you're talking about. Countries in the South, Italy, Greece, they feel much more strongly about the economic toll of migration and illegal migration and asylum seekers than the countries in the north, Germany, France. But uh, of course, countries like Germany and France feel like they're footing most of the financial bill for it. So we constantly see these tussles back and forth within the EU. And we've seen that as well in the economic response that the EU has made to COVID-19 over things like uh, recovery funds. Just those, those familiar crossroads in the EU always come to the fore. Stratfor has written quite in depth about the potential for trouble is the relationship if you go a little farther south with Turkey and it threatening to open the gates to migrants coming across the Mediterranean. How is that situation playing out right now? Yeah, the EU and Turkey signed a landmark migration deal a few years ago. And the reality is that deal is still holding. It, it gets a lot of publicity, especially in the summer. And Turkey's government does frequently cast light on it and, and try to remind the EU that Turkey is helping the EU um, by uh, keeping and policing its borders in such a way that prevents a higher number of asylum seekers from reaching the other side of the Mediterranean. Turkey does receive money and funds from the EU uh, for its participation in that agreement. But yeah, every summer you see a lot of coverage of this. You see a lot of desperate stories of people trying to cross. But the reality is, despite the bluster between Turkey and Greece and the very real tensions right now in the Mediterranean between Turkey and Greece, and even countries like France and Turkey right now, um, there is a lot of tension within the NATO network right now. But that agreement is still holding. Mm-hmm. Well, further south, certainly one immediate impact of the pandemic was on the price of oil. Certainly hit U.S. shale producers and Middle East oil producing nations quite hard. Can you talk to me a little bit about the economic effects in the Middle East and why a Western audience should care? Yes. So declining demand for oil, lower consumption globally, slower economic activity, that's hurting just about everyone in, in some way across the globe. But it will deal a blow to countries that are very dependent on oil and gas revenue in, in a unique way. The less diversified your economy is, the harder it will be to weather uh, this ongoing contraction without other sectors to draw from. So, I mean, in the Middle East, that means a country like Algeria, for instance, which is the wealthiest country per capita in North Africa, but is very highly dependent on hydrocarbon revenue. For Algeria, COVID-19 and the economic strain related to it and the drop in oil prices that was connected to it, um, COVID-19 reveals Algeria's economy's vulnerability um, and it's forcing that government, which is ostensibly a wealthy government, 
a wealthy country, it's forcing it to scramble to plug up budget gaps. Algeria, just like every oil producer in the Middle East, it's spending a lot of money on salary guarantees, on stimulus measures that they had not originally drafted into their budgets. And they're relaxing deadlines for fees and for taxes. They're, they're trying to make things easier for their citizens. And you have things like countries are scrambling to cut corners and uh, Algeria is trying to cut its import bill by $10 billion, for example, because it just will not be receiving the amount of revenue that it had originally budgeted when it drafted its 2020 budget. And, and this is happening across the whole region and, of course, outside of the Middle East region as well. I think this matters because it, it impacts not just these oil producers. It really does affect every country around them, um, including countries that are more unstable, countries like Iraq and Lebanon, or just countries in the Middle East that aren't major oil producers but are suffering economically because of COVID-19 lockdowns stifling domestic consumption or COVID-19 hampering travel and tourism. Um, countries like Morocco and Egypt. Tourism is a very important contributor to the GDPs of Morocco and Egypt. And tourism and travel is simply not happening anywhere close to the scale that these countries typically depend on. So that just removes a very important source of foreign currency um, it removes a very important contributor to uh, employment in these countries. Um, and that means that those governments um, who don't have large amounts of oil money or, or stockpiles or fiscal margins to draw from, they're trying to patch up those gaps with short-term stimulus and direct cash transfers. So all of this is creating um, a situation that's going to take a long time for this region to get out of. And uh, the, sort of one of the um, last things I, I did want to mention about this in MENA is we also have COVID-19 related economic strain exacerbating existing serious financial and economic crises um, that we're already going to be really hard to get out of. Um, many people have been following Lebanon recently because of the massive explosion in Beirut recently. And Lebanon was facing a serious financial crisis that's been building for years, decades even, and it, it, it sort of burst to the surface just before COVID-19 became a serious issue. Now, in part because of COVID-19, it's only going to become harder for Lebanon to find a path forward from this crisis. Emily, speaking of Lebanon, can we talk a little bit about how low oil prices will impact remittances from foreign workers and why people should be paying attention to that? Yeah, Emily, I'm glad you asked that. I, I think remittances are an enormous issue that doesn't get as much attention because it inordinately affects the global south. So all of these wealthy countries that are facing unexpected economic contractions um, especially the oil-producing countries in the Middle East. Many of them depend on substantial amounts of expatriate labor. But when you have, of course, constrained economic activity, there are fewer jobs. The government might, in some cases, get extra protective of those jobs for nationals. All of that equals less demand for that expatriate labor. So people are losing jobs and, and going home. I mean, the number of expatriate-filled flights leaving places out of the Arab Gulf, for instance, over the last several weeks has been astonishing. They're going home to countries that are also grappling with COVID-19 and related economic strain. And those countries that are also now sorely missing that, that source of foreign currency, that remittances, when those expatriate workers send money 
home to, to families, that provides a really important source of foreign currency. So much of that has kind of screeched to a halt over the last few months of, of COVID-19 related economic lockdowns. And of course, things are opening back up. Places are reopening for tourism. Travel is happening again. Governments are, you know, officials are meeting again and there's travel happening. But the length of time it's going to take for job markets to sort of pick up, labor markets to um, have the same amount of opportunities for expatriate workers in wealthier countries, it's going to take a long time for that to recover, which means it's, it, it has a, an impact on the countries that contribute or supply that expatriate labor. Another major oil-producing nation is Russia. Mm-hmm. And what is going on with its economy and the COVID impact? It's interesting because, and I made sure to to consult with my my colleagues who follow um, Eurasia and who follow Russia um, more closely on a daily basis than I do. The COVID nineteen crisis hasn't actually been a total disaster for the Russian government budget um, because their financial reserves have granted them some buffer. But I think what's important to realize is that still leaves the economy in a fragile place. This is the same with countries like Saudi Arabia, for example, where they they have a substantial amount of foreign currency reserves, but they're still really susceptible to external shocks um, on the system. And so while there hasn't been an immediate sharp impact to the Russian government budget, the economy is still in a fragile place. And there are really big issues like Russian consumer spending, reduced purchasing power, tripled unemployment, and something that Mike mentioned earlier in the United States, which is there is a potential likely wave of bankruptcies to come. So there are a whole host of issues just sort of waiting (laughs) to come to the surface. So even in countries that it doesn't look like an immediate crisis at the moment, this is going to have an impact on them for a long time to come. Michael, Russia is, of course, a geopolitical rival with the United States, but another geopolitical rival with the United States, of course, is China. It's also one of the United States' major and most contentious economic relationships. Can we talk about a few of the economic and trade items that have risen to the surface over the last couple of months? Sure. One of the issues that's come up in the last few months, Emily, has been whether or not there should be a a decoupling, so to speak, or a divorce between the U.S. and the Chinese economies. Stratfor published a paper just a week or so ago in which we said that you essentially have a $4 trillion relationship between the two countries. Um, That is not going to be easy to reverse or to overcome. Now, I suppose over several decades that could happen. But in the short term, the two of us are together, for better or for worse, um, and there will be conflicts between the two, particularly political and and geopolitical conflicts. But uh, I think the economic relationship is one that's going to be very long-lasting, whether or not people like it or not. Well, let's talk about China's own economic situation. You mentioned earlier that uh, it was on the opposite side of the spectrum from the United States. Could we get a little more deeply into that? Right. Um, well, as you know, China was the first in, and it's been the first. It's been the first out, so to speak. Um, most of the uh, the economic pain in China was suffered during the first quarter of the year, rather than as in the United States and the rest of the world during the second quarter. Um, 
Having said that, um, China did show some recovery in the second quarter, that is the, the April through, uh, through June quarter of the year, um, but it was only 3.2% compared to, compared to uh, historic growth rates in China that have averaged between 6 and 10%. Um, and even that, we think, was somewhat uneven. Um, you had a large increase in industrial production in China in that quarter, but on the other, on the other hand, you had low domestic demand and low external demand. So a lot of the increased production was probably going only into inventories where it's going to sit and affect production going forward. Consumption, domestic consumption has been down. Private investment has been down in China. Really the only categories that have been showing improvements have been the the industrial production and government spending, which has been very, very large, um, perhaps as much as 15% of GDP in China. So China is is perhaps ahead of where the United States is. It was supposed to be the uh, the prototype for how countries recovered from COVID-19, but uh, it in fact is having substantial problems and will take a while to uh, to recover completely. Now, Michael, of course, how China trades and does business with other nations suffering their own economic impacts of COVID-19 does have a major impact on the global economy. It does, Emily. Um, China is probably the uh, the largest trading nation on earth, and global trade for the global trade was down something like 17% through the first 5 months of this year um and the world trade trade organization projects that it could be off as much as a third for the entire year um so while the slowdown in global trade has decelerated it in fact has continued and the contribution of net exports to china's growth has been much smaller than it has been in the past and that will probably continue until there's there's an increase in in global demand for uh, for Chinese goods. There's so much we potentially could cover. What do you think is something that we really need to keep an eye on for the next couple of months? One of the things, and I think Emily made reference to this, uh, one of the things that concerns us at Stratfor is, I guess, what we would call a doom loop or a feedback loop between private sector debt. Um, the banking systems and sovereign debt, particularly in Europe, where the three of them are are related, banks hold sovereign debt on their books as assets. Um, they also hold private debt as assets. And if you have a hiccup in any one of those, it can have feedback effects on the other. And there's a possibility that it could eventually set off another European sovereign debt crisis. And the last time Europe went into a sovereign debt crisis in 2010, it took seven years to recover. Putting that on top of COVID would uh, be sort of adding insult to injury. And I think on the subject of debt, of course, in the Middle East, it's different, but it is unique that in part because of COVID-19, we are seeing a record amount of sovereign debt being taken out by some governments in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia, for instance, is taking out more debt than it's ever taken out before. And that's all going to have to be paid back at some point. An economy like Saudi Arabia's is still at the mercy of oil prices. Um, so it just creates a, a much longer timeline for any of the economic reforms, diversification plans that Saudi Arabia has planned. And I also wanted to mention a topic that, that Mike and I have talked about together quite a bit. When we talk about private sector debt, you have to talk about Turkey. Turkey has a very high amount of foreign 
currency denominated private sector debt. And it has a very volatile currency. And right now, because of COVID-19, um, we're seeing an exacerbation of Turkey's existing financial tension. I, I don't know, Mike, what do you think is sort of one of the most important things to think about with respect to Turkey right now? Well, Emily, um, what strikes me about Turkey is that the Turkish lira has depreciated against the U.S. dollar by almost a third in the last year. It's been 20% this year. Obviously, financial markets know something is going on. I'm not quite there yet in terms of understanding what the uh, the relationship is between the Turkish banking sector and the sovereign and how that might be affected. But the, the amount of dollarization in the economy, as you pointed to, and the amount of foreign currency debt is certainly cause for concern. And if nothing else, it's going to cost the Turkish economy more to service that debt in lira terms than it has in dollar terms. And, and that's a vulnerability that we're going to have to keep an eye on and look more into. Yeah, I agree. Thank you both so much for your insight. Uh, there's so much more that we could have covered, but we're out of time. Emily Hawthorne is a Middle East and North Africa analyst with Stratfor. Michael Monderer is Stratfor's senior analyst for global economics. Individuals and organization turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Together, Stratfor and RAIN help you understand the why behind what's happening now, because what happens next? Well, that's up to you. You can sign up for RAIN's newsletter and become a member today at rainnetwork.com slash join. That's rainnetwork.com slash join. I'm Emily Donahue. Thank you for listening. <laughs>